This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. The following podcast contains explicit language. Welcome to Mom and Dad Are Fighting, Slate's parenting podcast for Thursday, June the 21st, the Do More edition. I'm Gabriel Roth. I'm an editor at Slate, and I'm the father of Eliza, who is seven, and Leo, who is almost four. I'm Rebecca Lavoie. I'm a journalist and podcaster in New Hampshire, and I am mom to Henry, who is 16, Teddy, who is 15 and a half, and my stepdaughter, Lily, who is 18. And I'm Carvel Wallace, a writer and podcaster in Oakland, California, and I'm the father to Georgia, who is 12, and Ezra, who is 15. Today on our show, uh, we're going to talk to Catherine Goldstein. She's a journalist who wrote a column for the New York Times, The Open Secret of Anti-Mom Bias at Work. We're going to talk about discrimination against moms and pregnant women. Then we're going to take a question from a listener about what to do when your kid gets old enough to notice all of your vices. Plus, as always, we'll have recommendations. And on Slate Plus, Catherine will be back to share a parenting triumph. Okay, we start with triumphs and fails we're going to do this a little differently. Carvel, do you want to start? I feel like I want to talk about a fail, which is the current situation at the border with parents and children being separated. And um, this is not a fail in my own daily parenting, but it's a collective fail. And fail is not the big enough word for it. So I'm kind of shoehorning it into this space. But I will say that um, probably three weeks ago, I tweeted something about this and made uh, a comparison between the early stages of what seemed to be something moving towards state sanction, genocide, and this moment right now. And I got a lot of pushback that I was being too dramatic and that I was grandstanding and virtue signaling was a phrase that was used at some point. And um, I, people have online have been posting pictures. This is started by Ava DuVernay, the director, um, who posted a picture of herself as a child and said, this is the age I would be if I was separated from my parents at the border and kept in a camp. And I was thinking about that because that that actually is around the age that I was separated from my mother. I was not placed in a camp. I was placed with a loving family who were awesome and took care of me uh, for a number of years. But even in that situation, that maternal separation was phenomenally painful and life-changing. And at the beginning, way back when when I heard the first example of um, a mother being separated from their child, which was back in... I'm going to say February of 2017, they deported a single mother who had been here for 14 years and had three children here, who was working, was a law-abiding citizen. All their their three kids were, um, were, uh, you know, in school and everything was fine. And then they, and then they deported this mother and left these three kids here alone. I think it was in Colorado. When I heard about that story, I, 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 emailed a friend about it, and it really troubled me because it, it really reminded me of what it was like to be raised by a single mother who's putting everything she can together to keep you safe and fed and to have the government intervene and say, well, unfortunately, because of where you were born, you don't have the right to do this, so go away. Um, I That <laughs> really affected me then, and I've just watched it grow. And uh, to me, this is a... Again, fail is too small a word because that's a joke word. This is much bigger than that. But it's something that we collectively as a country have allowed. And I don't care who you are or what decisions you've made. We've allowed it. We've collectively allowed it. Even if you feel that you individually haven't, the reality is that it's happening. And so um, there is whatever it is that we're doing, I would encourage all of us to do something more that we wouldn't normally do um, because it is that serious. And there is a tendency, I think, I've noticed to feel like things will ultimately work out if we just hope that they will. 
And that theory has been, in my opinion, thoroughly disproven. And I really hope that all of us recognize that that is simply not the way things work. This, that is not to be relied on. Human decency can't be relied on as a final bulwark against tragedy. It simply can't. So that's what I want to use this space to talk about. Thank you. I've been um, failing catastrophically at like processing what's been going on and and uh, continuing to maintain any kind of healthy presence in my own family's life. Um, uh, I can tell you that I've been, um, you know, I've been giving money and we'll be going to the march and demonstrations and things like that. And and you're right to call on me and everybody to do more than we've been doing and more than we would usually do. Um, I also feel like knowing about what's been going on has been um, just poisoning my ability to properly behave around my kids. I now feel mm. like I, 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 you know, I, you know, um, I am generally, I, I try to be conscious of my own privilege and I have a fair amount of privilege to be conscious of. Um, and over the past week or two, uh, I have been conscious that just physically attending to my children in banal ways is a privilege now. That mm. just being able to wipe my son's ass after he poos mm. is now, which is not my favorite part of parenting, <laughs> is is now something that, you know, there's other people just by virtue of their, you know, geographic origin and, and the fact that they were fleeing desperate circumstances, that's something that they are now being denied. Just getting to look at my children is now something that I get to have because of who I am or where I was born or what kind of papers I have um, as opposed to just the most basic and, and fundamental um, aspects of human existence in the world. Um, and it makes me not a good father and not a nice person to be around. Um, I, mm. I, I've been – the way I've been responding to that sudden consciousness of the precariousness of uh, everything that I have and the incredible tragedy that's befalling other people um, is has been to be um, uh, short-tempered and distractible and irritable and, and impatient. Um, It'd be good to stop doing that and then it would also be good to uh, give more money and, and do more political work. Um, the giving money helps temporarily. The p political work is probably more useful if you can do it. The first piece – the reason I actually ended up becoming a writer is because I wrote something on Facebook that sort of like went viral and then someone asked if they could publish it on their blog. And then after that, that then it went viral off the blog and then it was like that was it. And the piece that I wrote, the second piece I, I ever wrote for this tiny little blog was a piece about – me trying to parent Ezra and Georgia on the day that we were all waiting for the Mike Brown verdict. And in that essay, I talk a lot about <clears throat> that the thing you the exact thing you describe, Gabe, which is the difficulty of trying to parent when you are present holding this larger thing and how you make so many bad parenting choices. I'm gonna I'm gonna post that on the Facebook page because I, I think it applies to like a moment like this. I, there's I don't know what the there's so much that's difficult about it, but that's not what's important. Like there's a lot that's difficult about it, but that's not what's important. What's important is that everyone does what they can, and slightly more than they think they can. That's mm. what's important, I think. Sorry, I didn't mean to cut you off, Rebecca. Go ahead. So this is what this makes me think about, Carvel. You're talking about doing more than what you would normally do. And I think that what a lot of people are doing and what they normally do is tweet or is write Facebook posts of outrage or is complain about the voters they think whose fault this is. And, you know, in other situations that have come up in the past few weeks, I found myself having this conversation at home you know, when the NFL changed its policy and said they were going to fine players who kneeled, 
I got so upset. My mother was visiting and we ended up getting into a huge argument. I had an argument with both her and with Kevin, actually, because they were willing to when they're in talking about it. And of course, they're both like, oh, that's really upsetting. But they're willing to talk about it like in business terms. Right. Like this is a business decision. They're an employer. At least that's how they're going to frame it. They were using this sort of pragmatic language around it, even though they didn't necessarily agree with it. But they were able to sort of do that, you know, devil's advocate, pragmatic thing. And it made me so enraged. And I just realized my tolerance for bullshit rhetoric around these issues is really diminished. And it's it's very difficult when you're a working journalist and you find yourself in that situation. And I think we've seen with this situation with these children, you know, I can have the fight at home where I can be like, here, here's the thing, guys, like, we have to stop getting together at our friends' houses on Sunday to watch football. That is the, that's the only statement we can make, right? We can stop spending money on this. We can stop buying corn chips at the grocery store on football Sundays. Like, if a million people did that, it would make a difference. And that's something that I can say in the privacy of my home. It's more difficult for me to say that publicly because the situation can be framed as a political one, even though I think there's a really good case that it's not a political one. It's a civil rights situation. This is this is so ab- above the pale, beyond the pale of any of the conversations we've had where we have been um, tricked in a lot of situations into framing these conversations as a political conversation. That is not what this is. It is not what this is. And we are seeing journalists breaking down on the air. We're seeing the newsroom conversation where I work you know, turn into something completely different. We're getting standards memos, you know, from the news organization whose content we broadcast NPR about how to talk about this on the air, because everybody has decided in the journalism side or a lot of people have anyway that like this is outside of that. So I guess the question is, like, what is the more you can do? What is the more you can do when you're talking about it, talking about it with your kids? What is the more you can do when you're out in your community beyond just pointing to the person you think whose fault it is, you know, maybe your neighbor who voted a certain way and saying, like, it's that person's fault and bitching about it on Facebook? What is that more? I do think it's important to ask ourselves that question and then do it. Yeah. So I think it's different for every person. It depends. Some people would never go to a rally. Those people need to go to a rally. Some people would never give money. Those people would give money. Some people would never post about stuff on Facebook and it's time for them to post about stuff on Facebook. And And I will say that, like, I the I every it's it's convenient and 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 temporarily appropriate along the timeline of our development as a culture to now complain that posting stuff online is doing nothing. And that's not inaccurate. However, Mm -hmm. if this same thing were happening in 1983, it would be much more along the lines of advancement and development before anyone knew about it. Mm -hmm. Just the fact that when I posted this, the first like I said, the first family separation that I witnessed was in February of 2017. And I wrote about it then in a private email to a friend. And and then the when I posted about this three weeks ago or something like that, I was told by a vast majority of people, don't you think you're overreacting a little bit? And to watch that from three weeks go from don't you think you're overreacting to now this is the number one story that everyone is talking about to the point that we're talking about it on this podcast that is a sign that social that what is happening on social media is helping. It's not everything, but I but I would caution against saying it's not it's nothing because it's not nothing. Right. It's something. But it's if, how if we it's know what you're doing, things. you can do more. Is what you're saying, That's right. and it, I agree yeah, with and you. And so, but I, but I think every person needs to you know. And like I saw, I I have a friend from high school, Christian guy, very nice, kind hearted guy. Does never wants to get into politics, quote unquote. He delivered this long post where he really tried to thread the needle because I could see that this was difficult for him. But he was like, he was like, I never talk about this stuff, but here's what I can say. And I don't know. And here's what I can say. And on the one hand, you could look at that post and be like, bro, that's it. That's what you have for this. It takes children being, it takes like, you know, like babies being ripped away from their parents for you to say something. But on the other hand, I'm looking at this and I'm going for this kid, this is more, not kid, I guess we're 49, but for this guy, this is more than he would normally do. And I, I just, you know, I haven't quite found the right words for this. I've been thinking about this, but I do know that a lot of what has allowed this to happen over the course of time is this. We have this. We don't quite have an infrastructure or language to talk about this. I saw this during the 2016 election when I worked for a company that shall not be named a media company. And I was covering the election and I was trying to say, I think this is not just about politics. This is a 
something much bigger and more dastardly. And I was told in a variety of ways by a number of people, well, we can't talk about it like that because that's not fair. That's not going to sound not going to sound impartial. I think that the fact that we don't quite have a language to talk about this um, and you can't do talk about what it really means and also remain inside the standards of professionalism is exactly how this has happened. And I think the people that I trust are the people that are like, okay, now it's not the time for standards. Sorry, it isn't. And not for everyone, but I think for a lot of us, we have to break these ideas that we can't say certain things. We can't talk to certain things about people. We can't bring up politics at the dinner table. Whatever it is that like is holding that back, I think that there's more push because this, while we're debating whether or not it's polite or nice or even strategic, this other stuff is happening and rapidly happening. And I just, that's just the way I feel about it. So I'm kind of like, I don't give a fuck what anyone thinks is right or wrong. I feel pretty clear here what's right or wrong. And I'm going to be very clear about it in my thoughts, deeds, and actions. There's one thing I, there's one thing I would add to that, which is um, in response to the question of what, what can we be doing right now? Many things, plenty of things. Carvel said some, I mentioned others. One thing that I would add to the list is, especially if you live in a swing state or near a swing district, organizing around the midterm elections. And, yeah, that's right. And that's not to say yeah. that the Democratic Party is without its myriad flaws or or that American history isn't full of atrocities committed by both parties, et cetera, et cetera. But right now, if this immediate emergency crisis situation is something that you want to do political work around, the next moment for accountability is the midterm elections in November. And and if that's a thing that you wouldn't ordinarily do, it might be time to start thinking that's about right. doing that. Yeah, that's right. That's right. And for me, that actually is the thing. Like getting involved in like boring politics is like the thing that I don't normally do. I'm not going to like go to like a normal little like local politics meeting or do some weird normal paperwork shit with like the local chapter of the whatever. That's not what I do. <laughs> you know what I mean? So guess what I'm doing? That. Because now be it's time for me to do more than I've done before. <laughs> well, yeah, whatever, man. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> hey, it's Ryan Reynolds and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters, May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. It. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Before we move on, let's do the business. As always, if you have a question that you would like us to tackle, you can leave us a message at 424-255-7833 or send us an email at slate.com. Don't forget to check out our Facebook presence. We have a very lively Facebook group. Just go to Facebook and search for Slate Parenting. Lots of parents there talking about the show, sharing their own triumphs and fails, asking for recommendations, and uh, posing their own parenting questions. Uh, uh, a lot of good discussion. So check it out. Go to Facebook and search for Slate Parenting. On Slate Plus today, Catherine Goldstein will share a triumph with us. Uh, you can hear that segment and another like it every week by joining Slate Plus, just $35 for your first year. You uh, get an extra bonus segment of this show and your other favorite Slate podcasts every week. You hear no ads in any of Slate's programs and uh, you help us support the show. So go to slate.com slash mom and dad plus join slate plus today. Okay, let's go. Okay. Uh, welcome back to the program, Catherine Goldstein. If you're a longtime listener, you've heard her on this show before. She's a journalist who writes about women in the workplace. She's the author of a column from the New York Times in May, The Open Secret of Anti-Mom Bias at Work. We're going to be talking about those issues and a subsequent New York Times report on pregnancy discrimination uh, by Natalie Kittroff and Jessica Silver-Greenberg. Catherine, thanks for being with us. Hi, everyone. Why don't you start by telling us what the story found? Well, um, the story really summarized uh, in a really great way, very concrete uh, examples of pregnancy discrimination. I really encourage readers to check it out because it. Um, I think a lot of times uh, we don't have as many 
sort of concrete examples of what this looks like. And a lot of times people don't recognize this kind of bias and call it out for what it is. And so I thought this time story was really great because it gave, you know, there are photos, there's a lot of evidence, and it really sort of helped um, create momentum around this conversation about anti-mom bias, which is something I've written about and and study and, and report on. And I think that I'm hoping that people will read this and women will sort of go back to some of their own experiences and start to look at them in different ways. Um, because I think that there's a lot of bias against mothers in the workplace. And this is getting really high profile stories like this is a big part of starting um, essentially what I think is an extension of the Me Too conversation about women in the workplace. So just give us a sense. What happens to women when they get pregnant at work? What kinds of things happen to women at work when they get pregnant? Well, uh, there's no sort of one-size-fits-all experience. Um, I'm sure many of the listeners have had you know, their own experiences. But I think one of the most pernicious things that happens to women um, a lot of times who have been great employees or high achieving, um, there's sort of an immediate sense of they're seen differently, they're treated differently, and um, often victims of what is called benevolent discrimination, which is something that essentially people uh, act like they are or, or think they're doing something that helps a woman because she's a mother, but actually is discriminatory. Like, for example, saying, oh, I don't think she'd want that promotion. She'd have to travel more. She probably doesn't want to be away from her kids. We won't offer it to her. Or, you know, um, there's she probably isn't interested in this professional development. You know, she'd rather be home with her kids or um, she's too busy or, it's in, or asking questions like, what's your childcare situation? Or um, are you going to be able to handle this responsibility while also being a mom, which is stuff that basically dads do not get those questions and they don't face those issues. And the economic impact of this is humongous. Women who have children between the ages of 25 and 35, which are basically your prime childbearing years, earnings never recover compared to their husbands or their male partners. So um, there's a really big economic drop um, a lot of times because workplaces just don't um, value women and they have to take different steps back in their careers because they can't find work that values them and accommodates them and also, you know, is able to see the contributions they make for what they are. So one of the things that I think is really interesting around this conversation is how it's it sort of spreads beyond the, um, you know, when you talk about the benevolent thing, if you think about the way you hire, even the way you sort of set salaries for certain jobs, and you think about, like, say, the housing in your community and what an employee would need to be able to live where you work. I think about this a lot because, you know, I work in a newsroom and we hire reporters and it's not the highest paying job in the world. And it kind of came up when we were talking about salary stuff a couple years ago that we really need to think about the person who needs a two bedroom apartment, who can't live with roommates, because we're basically excluding everybody who has kids when we are hiring for these jobs at this rate of pay. I mean, that's that's part of the conversation. And, you know, another thing that came up is, you know, the timing are, you know, someone's due for a promotion. If the promotion doesn't start until after they return from their maternity leave, then they're being paid the rate of the old job, not the one that they are qualified to do and have been chosen for. While they're out on maternity leave, they're being paid, you know, that 60 percent or whatever of their I mean, there's so many other pervasive little ways that this that this has an effect that I just don't think that not only men don't think about, but I think that a lot of women don't think about and might not think about those sort of microaggressions of discrimination. Yeah. And I, it's so complicated because also the people who are perpetuating this uh, bias against mothers in the workplace, it's not like oh, it's that big, bad, chauvinist man who doesn't have any kids and just doesn't get it. Like, in my reporting and other uh, reading that I've done, this is this bias against mothers exists and comes from all corners. And it comes from um, mother other mothers in the workplace. It comes from other women. It comes from men who have children. So it, it's uh, something very, very deep ingrained in our society about how we view mothers. And it can manifest in so many ways. And I think a lot of times 
um, women after they have children make a career pivot or they change tack or they decide to go freelance or go on their own, out on their own. And sometimes that can be seen as that was my choice. But, you know, if every time you have to do a daycare pickup, you, you the boss rolls his eyes or you're harassed every time you have a sick kid or you're asked to pump breast milk in a dirty closet, like, is that really a choice? Um, and I think we have to, as a society, start to look at that. And women are starting to examine their own experiences through the lens of, you know, is this my choice or is this a company and culture that has not valued me and has discriminated against me? Well, it makes me wonder if uh, on the whole we're looking at it like a cultural shift. I mean, before you came on, we were talking about the ways in which people can argue any sort of personal, spiritual, social idea along the lines of business, that that's something that we as a country excel at. And like the business argument for this, for like this, that leads to this benevolent discrimination is is like, look, the productivity is the name of the game. And so the more you're here, presumably the more productive you are, the more hours you can spend in the office, the more hours you can spend pursuing your job and pursuing our accounts and clients or whatever, the more productive you are. And that, and that is the final bottom line. And so anything that impedes on your ability to to be in the office grinding away makes you a less valued member of our team. That's the logic behind this. And And when I think about this, I I like I often feel like what's really at stake is a complete reimagining of how we measure value. Yes. Like we measure value in terms of bottom line and like it makes me feel like that part of what we need to do is like find another way <laughs> and embrace another way and explore other ways to measure values and contributions. Can you talk a little bit about like what the argument what the counter argument is to that? That I think is such a good point. So basically um, the as you say, we sort of there's a this untrue uh, stereotype that mothers are a drag on a business. They aren't as productive. They take maternity leave, and therefore um, they cost the company money. First of all, replacing, especially in highly skilled jobs, replacing women who leave the workforce costs companies a huge amount of money. They've invested a ton of training and um, you know. Uh, effort to get women at a certain level, when they leave, it can take up to a year's worth of their salary to replace them. Um, And then there's also a sense of, you know, we've, our capitalist culture in many, uh, many ways, our work culture values like the most important and productive workers are the ones that are first, the first ones there in the morning and the last ones to leave. That isn't actually a measure of productivity. And there's actually been a number of studies that working mothers are actually more productive with their work time, especially, you know, and that the idea that it, only the people who are staying late are productive is, first of all, not true and has a huge bias against people who have care taking responsibilities. So I totally agree with you, Carvel. We have to reimagine the workplace um, and reimagine how we evaluate someone who's productive and successful um, it, rather than just saying it's the number of hours you put in, it's the number of vacation days you don't take, and all these measures that don't actually foster creativity or critical thinking or uh, approaching problems in new ways or bringing new clients or new ideas to the table. Those are often hallmarks of a successful company, and you can't have that if you only have one kind of worker in your organization. So. What we've talked about so far is on employers, right? It's on employers and everybody who manages or makes hiring or promotion decisions around women. Is the United States' very shitty social safety net also implicated here? Yeah, definitely. So um, for any international listeners who don't know, there's no paid family leave, national, federal paid family leave uh, for any workers in America. And about only about 17% of workers have access to any paid family leave. That number may go up a little bit because New York just put in a program that covers a lot of people starting this year. But it's a it's an abysmal system, and it's really left up to the employers to decide how much leave they want to give and at what rate. About 25% of women who give birth go back to work within two weeks of giving birth, which is just atrocious. Um, so... Uh, I think a, a lot of this is left to the employers because the federal government has been so negligent in dealing with this issue. Fortunately, there's more stuff going on at the state level, but this anti-mom bias isn't just about family leave. This is about all sorts of culturally ingrained problems um, and how we view mothers that 
that impact women far beyond when they return to work. It seems to me that if we as a society decided that we're going to share the costs of raising children more, we're going to leave them up to the individual mothers and parents, but particularly mothers less, uh, employers wouldn't have to be or wouldn't find themselves being so conscious of the particular individual decisions that mothers have to make. Yeah, and I think uh, offering real uh, family leave for fathers and male caregivers um, is a really important part of this because it actually reduces uh, bias against mothers in the workplace because people are going to be less likely to say, oh, let's hire that guy. I'm sure he's not really ever going to take leave if he has kids. Um, And so changing some of those cultural norms and also men who take family leave of the studies show that through the lifetime of their child are more involved in their kids' lives forever, basically. So they're more involved at home, which also can help women thrive in their careers. So there's all these dominoes in this conversation that haven't been addressed, but I think it's a really exciting moment to be looking at what are the biases that exist and for women to start thinking about their own workplaces, speaking up for themselves and also trying to change um, their own company policies to ha- so we can foster a better conversation about this and help mothers thrive more in the workplace. And men, too. I mean, I think about the opt in things that a man can do to help change the culture of his organization. One of my colleagues who same level as me, director level, um, he chooses because he wants to set this example. And this is a conversation we had. It started out as like a strategic move to destigmatize this idea that like everybody who has little kids has to leave at like 4.58 so they can get there like when they have to get there to pick them up at daycare. Because as you know, you get charged for every minute that you're late. And they're very strict about that. So he made the, makes the choice to not only be the one um, in his relationship who goes picks up the kids, but he announces it. He says it all the time. Like, I got to leave at, you know, 5.05 today because I got to go pick up the kids, thereby normalizing this idea that somebody in a position of authority uh, can do this and still be seen as an effective manager, as an effective employee. I mean, I really think it's on anybody who's interested in seeing this change. I, I, it's, it's sad, but it's true how much men can make a difference in shifting the conversation in a workplace. I've seen the results of it up close. There is nobody now in our newsroom who couldn't leave for exactly the same reason without feeling like for a second like they had to explain it. It's just the culture now. And a lot of it was led by a conversation we had where we I said to him, like, we it wasn't just me. It was a joint conversation where you all sort of said as a group, like, what can we do to make this normal? And what we can do is opt in, have both the men and the women all decide it's okay to be the ones to leave to pick up our kids from daycare. I think that's such a great point, Rebecca, because it uh, men have a huge ability to really lead on this. And if you are a feminist man who wants to see uh, mothers treated better in the workplace, I recommend talking about your kids, being transparent about your own care caretaking responsibilities and take whatever uh, the full family leave is that's offered to you at your workplace. And if you aren't, if men aren't given family leave, advocate for change. Because too often in my reporting, I found basically women are often the ones who are advocating for better family leave policies and men feel like it's not really their place to um, get involved with that. And so the more men speak up and set a good example and help set a tone for a company, especially when they're in a leadership position, can have a hugely positive impact. All right. Thank you so much, Catherine. Um, you'll be back in Slate Plus to talk about a triumph or fail? Yes, I will. Great. Another day is here and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Okay, we're going to take a question from a listener. This was sent by email to slate.com. You can email us there too. This is from listener MR. It's being read for us by Slate Plus Associate Editor Chow Tu. Dear Mom and Dad are fighting. Dear daughter is 12 and a great kid. My question is not so much about her, but about me and my husband. We are normal adults with normal vices and not sure how to deal with them now that dear daughter is old enough to notice and comment on them. We occasionally drink alcoholic beverages, my husband smokes a couple of cigars a week, and I sometimes indulge in food that technically I'm allergic or sensitive to. 
We are not always perfect role models for driving with a cell phone, or saying something snarky about someone in front of her. I'm sure some of these things we really should try not to do, at least in front of dear daughter, but it also seems hypocritical to hide our flaws from her. How do we explain to a smart kid why grown-ups sometimes do self-destructive or wrong things while hoping that she won't do them too? Your biggest fan, MR. I love this question because this is my life. Uh, I am a drinker. I am a mobile phone addict. I swear a lot. And I'm super snarky about other people all the time. And I have always done all of these things in front of my kids. And I'm a good test case for they're turning out fine, <laughs> making really good decisions. This is um, I, I do think that again, and I, I, I say this on the show a lot, and I, I think this is another situation in which it applies is a lot of transparency. You, know, you do uh, get to make adult choices as an adult. You do get to have a cocktail when you get home from work and wine with dinner if you choose to. That is your adult agency and, and your choice to do. And you can tell your kid that when they ask questions. You can take the mystery out of it. You cannot do the thing that ends up with the commercial of uh, I learned it from watching you, dad. You know what the dad did wrong in that pot commercial? He <laughs> lied about using drugs and all he did was tell his kid like never try marijuana and was secretly doing it in his own bedroom and of course the kid's going to find out. Now I'm not advocating for doing drugs in front of your kids obviously <laughs> but to me that was obviously the formula why the kid went down that road because there was hypocrisy going on in his house. Um, I I do have a problem with parental hypocrisy. I, I've never liked it when people who I know swear refuse to swear in front of their kids, even when their kids get to ages where they can completely tell the difference between a swear word and a regular word. I think it creates an atmosphere of kids then wanting to experiment with those vices on their own. And and because they're a mystery and because they've been told that it's verboten, you know, the whole forbidden closet of mystery, the first thing the kid's going to want to do is like open the closet door and, and get in there. So as much as is safe and practical and as much as you are modeling normal, legal, relatively healthy adult behavior, I am on team. Be yourself around your kids and be transparent about the fact that adults are adults and kids are kids and take the mystery out of it. That's the team that I tend to land on on these issues. Yeah. I mean, I, I think that there is an interesting thing about this question, which is not it's like there's this distinction, right? There's like stuff that you are doing that you think is fine, but you don't think kids should do it. And then there's stuff that you're doing that you actually think might be wrong and you don't think kids should do it, but you still want to do it. And I think it's interesting that this person lays out a list because it seems to me like the way they talk about it, different things fall in different categories. I think if having a drink when you get home from work or having a drink after dinner or whatever is fine. There's no question about how should you do this around your kid because there's nothing wrong with it, right? I mean, like there's it's like not a thing that it's something that there's something wrong with unless you really believe there's something wrong with it. And that's the second thing. So, like, if you're doing something like driving a car and your kid who's 12 can't drive a car, you're not going to be like, how can I drive a car around my kid? I don't want to be a hypocrite. <laughs> like, you just say driving a car is fine. Unfortunately, you can't do it because you're 12. But certainly when you reach a certain age, by all means, drive a car and do it safely. So it's like the same thing with having a drink after work. You can say having a drink after work is fine. I do it because I'm an adult. You're not of age yet. When you get of age, have a drink after work and do it safely. So there should be no problem. So if there is a problem... If there's discomfort in there, my, I think the important category here is the stuff that you're doing that you feel like you shouldn't be doing personally, not because of your kids, but you kind of know is wrong, but you're doing it anyway. Like texting and driving is a really good example. I don't think most people really think that texting and driving is like uh, totally fine and that everyone should be encouraged to do it. I think everyone feels like when you text and drive you shouldn't but it's fine like you're you're fine you know what you're doing right that's the kind of stuff that i think is the real worrisome stuff when you have a kid looking at you that second category of things that you do but you feel like you shouldn't do and my advice is actually you should stop <laughs> try to stop doing those things i don't think i think one of the things that's the one of the gifts that kids give us is they actually give us extra motivation to stop doing things that we're trying to stop doing anyway and this isn't and again i want to separate this out from like if you have a kid in your house, you should never drink, never swear, never whatever. I think swearing is fine. 
So I swear in front of my kids. I also think that my kids, my kindergartners shouldn't swear in kindergarten. And I had no problem explaining like there are contexts in which these words are appropriate and contexts in which mm-hmm. they're not. And this is what I know about it. But it's not like I think swearing is an inherently bad thing. So when I'm doing it, I'm violating my own beliefs. It's like, you know, but there's another thing like I, I struggle, have historically struggled with smoking. I've been an on and off smoker since I was like 17 years old. And that's an example of something that I don't, that I personally don't think is right. And so I don't want to do it in front of my children. And, and I, and, but my, the solution there isn't like the midway solution is to hide it from your kids because that's better than nothing. But the real solution (laughs) is to stop fucking smoking because you Mm. shouldn't, I think I shouldn't be doing anything that I think is wrong. Yeah. It's just a basic thing. I shouldn't be doing anything that I think is wrong. So if there's and stuff you in that text list and drive that you think, too, because it's illegal. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> exactly. But it, and it's I think texting and driving is wrong. I actually think it's I think it's not good. I think it's a bad thing to do because it fucking causes it accidents. Is. Plain and simple. And so um and so I have to try and stop texting and driving. And uh, I'm a lot better now than I used to be, but I still struggle with it because of you know whatever we're all obsessed. And so my answer for th- I would ask this parent, I guess I'm going to end on this. I would ask this parent to look through that list of things and find the things that you personally think you shouldn't be doing and work on not doing those things. And then separate those out from the things that like people say you shouldn't do, but you think are fine and fucking do the shit you think is fine and do it because Rebecca's right to that's hypocrisy to like hide something from your kids that you know is totally fine. But you that's not what it's about. But it does give you an opportunity to be better if you're struggling with getting better at something. So I would take that opportunity. Yeah, I think that distinction you're making, Carvel, is the right one. And I, I would add one thing, which is. When you take that set of stuff that you don't think you should be doing, let's use texting and driving as an example. When there's something that you know actually is dangerous and causes accidents and you shouldn't do it, but you really got to send this text this one time, and you make it about doing it in front of your kids rather than making it about doing yeah. it at all, That's right. you, you are making your children into your bad conscience. You are outsourcing your guilt to your children. You're putting those feelings of, oh, I shouldn't be doing this onto your kid and making them the thing that means that you shouldn't be doing it and the thing that's stopping you from doing it. And that's that's not a great thing to do to your kids. Don't make your kids your bad conscience. Own your bad conscience. Own your guilt. Own your sense of right and wrong. And when you own your feeling that I'm doing something that I shouldn't be doing, Uh, don't don't put that on your kids because it's not really about them. I can I just add one thing here. I mean, I think there are some things that we are trying to improve. And I think smoking is a good example. And for me, it's it's food. It's my weight. I've really been struggling with my weight a lot in the last couple of years in a way that I never have before in my adult life. And granted, I am in my mid 40s and I understand from a lot of different sources that this is not <laughs> uncommon. <laughs> but like I, I've I've literally gone from being a slim person to a heavy person, and I it's it's mm. new for me, and it's really tough. And I definitely exercise more than everybody in my house. I definitely eat better than everyone else in my house, and yet it persists. And um, I then know, you know, if I were to, you know, try to be more virtuous and try to not have that drink before dinner and not have wine with dinner because I know that would help, like. This is stuff I struggle with. Like, I'm really struggling with this problem. And and I want to set a good example for my kids about, like, managing this and, and dealing with it. But at the same time, I also know that sharing the struggle and how hard it is for me is also important. Because if, mm-hmm. like, we pretend that the things that are happening to us that we're having mm-hmm. a hard time with aren't happening, mm-hmm. then when your kid struggles with this kind of stuff and something that they know they could be doing better and just, you know, aren't able to find the time or aren't able to find the, the self-worth or whatever it is to get through it or, you know, perhaps they're in a situation that they don't know how to get out of like isn't it great to have that modeled too the man i shouldn't eat this and i just can't not and i just i just want to and i just want to let you know that i'm really struggling with this right now i think there's a component of that here too and um yeah i i i do think it's important to have those conversations too and i think the smoking one is you know it's you don't want to do it right you don't want to smoke but it's also a struggle and yeah. Isn't that valuable it's, in a way yeah. to know that that's hard? Absolutely. <laughs> yeah, it's a hundred percent. Yeah, it's true. It's addictive is what it is. And like it's and like I my kids, we talk about that. We talked about we talk about addictive stuff a lot in our house because we have a long multi-generational family history of it. And um, and 
it I, I do think it's right to have those conversations, especially by the time the kids are I think 12 is a good time to have that. I think if you're really good at massaging language, you can have that conversation younger, but you have to be a lot more careful. But I think by the time the kid is 12, 13, 14, they're starting to understand. And you can I, I, we absolutely talk about the struggles we have. And in fact, one of the interesting things that happened with Ezra this weekend is that he he and I got into a fight a long time ago about something. I don't even remember what it was. And he said, Dad, you know what your problem is, which is how he begins a lot of his statements these days. He said, you know what your problem is? You never like to admit when you're wrong. And you know what I mean? And like, and of course, I was like, that's not true. I always, <laughs> I mean, that's what I felt like inside, you know, but I, but I didn't say anything. And then uh, a few, like last weekend, like a few months later, he said, you know, dad, I, there was something we were debating about and I thought something and it was wrong. And I was like, oh, I, I, I totally wouldn't mess that up. Just kind of tossed it off. And he said, you know, dad, ever since I said that you never like to admit that you're wrong, I noticed that you actually do admit you're wrong a lot more and i want you know i appreciate that that's basically wow. what i said and i was like ah oh. like that really and it it occurred to me because i have been thinking about it how that must feel like to him forget what i think is happening what it feels like to him and to him that was a major part of his frustration is he felt like parent he, he was angered by the sense by the parental sense of infallibility and i think he in particular took a lot of comfort in knowing that we as parents are humans and that we're working through the stuff we're working through. So I think not only is it like right to do it, I think in a lot of cases it can actually be very helpful to kids to know that their parents are struggling with things but continuing to do them well is a key part. You're trying to do stuff. You're really going for it, you know? And um, it's fine to talk about what you struggle with around these areas. It's hard because when your kids are really little, you sort of have this unprecedented once in a lifetime opportunity to have someone who thinks you're perfect. (laughs) Like no one else in your life is ever going to think you're as wonderful as your kids when they're three. And and it's so hard hard to let go of that, you know, but like you got to let go of it. And if you can, if you can, you should let go of it gracefully. No, but I, I think that when you are sharing with them, I mean, my son, who's on a school trip in Europe right now, who I, by the way, completely forgot I could just call. Apparently, all the parents have been calling their kids, and I just haven't called them. So he called me today. And I was like, oh. <laughs> <Nice>. <laughs> I wow, guess I guess we, you I guess don't love me. talking on the phone. Thanks, Mom. <laughs> uh, no, but he called because he was at a party that, like, he didn't know anybody there. And, like, there was a bunch of kids from his own school there that weren't, like, his great friends or whatever. So he's like, I thought it would be a good time to, like, call and catch up with people. So I decided mm. to call you. And I'm like, we're tight. Like, he thinks mm-hmm. I'm great. And he also knows that I'm an asshole like 60% mm-hmm. of the time. And I really struggle with not being an asshole. I struggle with not judging people and being snarky and eating too much and like just being, you know, really sarcastic. And he knows that about me. And he also knows that like I try to not be that when it's appropriate to be. And he appreciates it. So I don't think he thinks I'm as perfect as he did uh, when he was three. But I do think he likes me more than he did when he was three. Okay. Time to move on. Thanks for the letter. Um, Good luck with this. Don't text and drive. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weightloss. That's plushcare.com slash weightloss. Time now for us to recommend things to you in a segment of the show that we like to call Recommendations. Rebecca. <laughs> it's very literal. <laughs> <laughs> we need theme music for that, like in- recommendations. Recommendations, recommendations. <laughs> Uh, Rebecca, <laughs> what are you going to recommend? Well, I saw on the Facebook page, the Facebook group for this podcast, somebody was asking for recommendations about podcasts for kids. And I've got one. Uh, of course, there are some podcasts that are made for kids, but of course, just like kids' music, those aren't necessarily the ones you want your kids to be listening to because they're super boring. You don't have to listen to them in your car. No, that's not true. The podcasts made for kids are great. But I want to recommend a podcast that, full disclosure, is made by people I know and work with in my day job, and that is wonderful for kids. Uh, it's actually a pair of podcasts. One of them is called Civics 101, which recently got a reboot, has two really wonderful hosts, very 
very curious, asking and getting answers to very basic questions about how our democracy works. Um, some of the episodes are a little bit heavy. Uh, you know, there are episodes about things like DACA and, you know, the National Institutes of Health. But then there are other episodes that are about things like the National Register um, and all of these, like, you know, why do we vote the way we do and all these interesting quirks of democracy. And the way it's produced, it's it's really engaging. And I know it's kind of designed for kids to listen to in a classroom. So I really recommend it. The other one is the show Outside In, which is about the natural world and how we use it. And I just heard an episode this week and I thought, oh, I have to recommend this. Some mom and dad are fighting. Uh, the team It's led by this really engaging guy, Sam, who just became a dad. And you can kind of hear it in his voice. He sort of has that curiosity of now of somebody who like has a baby. Um, but there was a great episode recently about this guy who's trying to disrupt the maple syrup industry, which sounds boring. But it's not, I promise. And there's a lot of just cool stuff in there about, like, how maple syrup is made. And every episode is like that. They answer questions like, why does it take my dog so long to poop? Uh, why are some birds this way and other birds aren't? It's really fun. So I'm going to recommend this pair of podcasts from where I work during the day and HPR. One of them is called Outside In, and the other one is called Civics 101. Nice. I'm going to go next because I have kind of a, a dumb recommendation. I'm going to hope Carvel has a better recommendation to close out the show. Uh, but my recommendation is um, the other day uh, Leo was in the pharmacy with his mom and um, he got to pick a thing from the rather paltry rack of kids products on offer at our local high street pharmacy. Uh, and he came home with a Minnie Mouse word search book, which I thought would be of no interest to him because he can't read. He, he doesn't know all his letters. He loves this book and he loves like he needs a grown-up with him to do it but you have to go through the letters and be like okay look there must be a p next to an l can you find a p next to an l here in this grid of letters and he will look for that p and that l for like two minutes and then he will find the p and the l together and find the word and he's so excited about it and he's really learning his letters from this garbage commodity Minnie mouse word search book <laughs> i'm going to try to find this specific word search book on amazon and then we'll post it in the show notes but i want to stress that it's not in any way important that you find this particular book. Uh, I'm just suggesting that if you have a kid who is too young for word searches and doesn't know any letters, you should maybe see if they are interested in doing word searches uh, because it turns out that maybe they will and it will be a fun way for them to learn their letters. Carvel, do you have a, a recommendation for some actually meritorious product? I Actually, it turns out I do. I'm going to recommend my favorite childhood book and um, the one that actually we named our kid after. The book is called This Snowy Day, and it's by Ezra Jack Keats, who is a children's author who was always my favorite ever since I was a little kid. He, he did a number of them, Whistle for Willie and, and do The Dog Show and so on and so forth. He was a Polish guy who lived in New York uh, and did all the artwork for his books in the 1960s. Um, and wrote these very simple, very emotional, very personal stories about individuals navigating a world and created these beautiful collages of Brooklyn and uh, in the background. And I have always loved those books and loved them so much that we we got that's where we got the name Ezra from. And uh, yeah, I just remembered that I, I just came across a copy of it and remembered how much I loved it and how much our kids loved it, especially because of the spaciousness of it. Uh, and so I'm going to recommend it. That's The Snowy Day by Ezra Jack Keats. That's great. I want to second that recommendation. Um, Third. The Snowy Day is a wonderful, wonderful book. And if you don't know it, you should. Uh, and that's our show. If you have a question that you want us to tackle on the air, you can give us a call at 424-255-7833 or send us an email at momanddad at slate.com. Discuss the show and all your other parenting issues and dilemmas at our Facebook group. Go to Facebook and search for Slate Parenting. Lots of good discussion happening there. Our show is produced by Benjamin Frisch. For Carvel Wallace and Rebecca Lavoy, I'm Gabriel Roth, and we'll see you next week. It is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. 
Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere, and each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. BGW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.